Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In this episode, we will uh, finish up uh, our look at Red Planet, which I started in the last episode. And um, and yeah, uh, we're, we're moving along pretty quickly through uh, the, the, the juveniles and I'm having a lot of fun with them. I've already started uh, digging my teeth into uh, Farmer in the Sky. Um, but before we get there, we got to do a we got a few short stories, four, I think, if I can get poor daddy, which I, which I think I can. Uh, but yeah, four short stories, uh, Delilah, the Space Rigger, um, uh, a few others. But we'll have to do those first. But I am starting to really enjoy t- uh, Farmer in the Sky. I, I read it uh, years ago, and I didn't remember how good it is. I think it might even be better than 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 Red Planet, although this one's pretty good too. It's it's amazing how quickly like Heinlein found his voice with these juveniles and and made them really impactful books. So, anyways, once again, uh, Red Planet. It was written or published in 1950, um, and it's his third, the third of the of the juveniles he he wrote. Um, out of what was there, 10, 11, 12 or so. Um, and in the last episode, I talked mostly about the, uh, the setting of, of Red Planet and how much thought was put into what this would look like, what humans on Mars might, you know, how they might live their lives, might, how they will interact with each other. And then especially the, the political situation is really well thought out here where there's a tension between the, the culture of the colonists, which is very libertarian, very independent, and the corporation that basically is running Mars as a as a almost like a private concern. It's the model here uh, is really I like corporate settler colonialism, um, which we saw in like especially the British and French uh, Atlantic expansion. I think where you had companies like the Virginia Company or the Massachusetts Bay Company or the French West Indies Company or the African Company. That was involved mostly in slave trade or the East India Company in India. Maybe that's the model to some degree. I, I think him being such an American, maybe his model is more like something like the Virginia Company, where it's the Virginia Company that is taking the lead in settler colonialism and, and people essentially join up with the company and they're basically the law. And then the tension becomes uh, the settlers, the colonists getting their own political authority, right? And that's why you had such radical differences in political systems across the American colonies as you had different histories with these corporations. For instance, the Massachusetts Bay Company, they created their own charter and they brought it with them. Essentially, the colony itself was the corporation, uh, so they were able to maintain their independence from from London and make their own decisions and create their little theocracy um, and all that. And that, that did Although it wasn't democratic really early on, it did allow that colony to emerge as a more democratic place because they weren't burdened by investors in London. They were the investors, right? That's what I mean by bringing their contract, their, their compact with them, right? Although I think they literally did bring the, 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 the charter. That's the word I'm looking for, charter, charter, uh, 
I guess there's the Mayflower Compact, but it's, it's charter is the word I'm looking for. They brought their charter with them. The Virginia Company, on their hand, was run by investors in London, and the people in Virginia were basically their, their lackeys uh, and servants, and, and that made for a, a less democratic, more authoritarian kind of system. Uh, and that's what we have really with Red Planet is uh, the, the authority is, is a corporation that's not really controlled by the people. But the, the other side of it is there's this very, very strong libertarian culture. And, and I think this is really where some of the work Heinlein's doing in like the Green Hills of Earth series of stories that we've been spending so much time on really starts to pay off is, and it's really going to, of course, you see it in Moon is a Hirsch Mistress uh, and, and actually quite a few of these juveniles have this theme, I think. And that is the people who are going to go into space are going to be, uh, these aren't the astounding era supermen. They're just people with a culture and, and a temperament that is more individualistic, more daring, more risk-taking. I, I don't want to say entrepreneur because that just sounds so gross. But uh, yeah, maybe that's, but we got to put ourselves in Heinlein's mind. Maybe that's really what it is. Um, but there's, there's a fierce kind of democratic individualism in, in Red Planet and in these settlers, and that's going to come to a head with it. So, you know, when you, if you first pick up this novel, you think you're going to have really a story about a young boy going to school with his pet, um, bounce, uh, uh, his pet uh, bouncer, right? That's what they called them, a, a native creature. Um, and then he's going to have conflicts with the authority at the school. That's what we sort of get in the first third of the book. And it's really good. It's wonderful. Um, but in the second third of the book, we, we get this kind of adventure tale where uh, Jim and his friend Frank uh, escape the school, save Willis, save the bouncer, and want to deliver the bad news to their family that the authority, the corporation is going to basically let them die in the long Martian winter by not letting them do their the migration, which is very expensive for, for the colony to do. Um, now, if people can survive the Martian winter in the colder climate is, is something maybe we have to get to a little bit. It, there, there's conflicting statements in the text on this. Um, but basically, it's really bad news if they can't migrate to the warmer climates during the Martian winter, which is, of course, a year long. So they escape the school with Willis as their evidence, um, almost die on the way to go on various adventures, get lost, eventually get saved by the Martians. And, and that's sort of where we dropped off last time. But that's what, that's what happens. They, they almost die. They get lost. They kind of start walking around in circles. They, get, they meet up with the Martians. Gecko is the Martian that Jim had the water ceremony with earlier in the book, which this pays off in that we get a, basically they get to go to the Martian society, see it. And it's really bizarre. It's really wild. But because of the bond between Jim and Gecko, they, they help. And the way they're treating Willis, I think, too, is, is part of it, as we'll see later on. Um, and then they are able to take essentially a high-speed high subway rapid transit to, to the home, to his, to his home in, well, where the people are preparing for the migration, tell the news that the migration is going to be canceled. And that's like the second third of the book. And the last third is this rebellion against, uh, against the Martian authorities. 
And that's what I want to focus on here. Um, so really, there's, yeah, there's two stories to talk about here. One is um, the, the rebellion, the resistance, and its outcome. And the second is the Martians themselves. Maybe the Martians are, we'll do that, that in first, I guess. Um, because the Martians end up helping the, the colonists um, with their rebellion. First they help Jim, then they help the colonists. So Jim becomes super important in the one that bridges the gap between humans and the Martians. Now, Martian culture is a little hard to describe. It, it's, and I think Heinlein does this on purpose. He doesn't want to make it just like a, like, you know, in, in Star Trek, you got, in the Star Trek episode, you got 40 minutes to maybe understand an alien culture. So they might have just one feature that's relatively easy to understand. It's basically something we see in human cultures in some degree, like the one, what's the one episode that's pretty good? The one where they kill people at 60, right? And uh, Troy's mom doesn't like that. So there's tension about that. Well, that you only have a few minutes to establish that. And that's actually something we see in human cultures, right? Um, where the elders are, you know, run, run off into the, into like, a, you know, the, the desert or something and die rather than be a burden on the village or whatever. Um, I don't think it's very common, but it, you know, you hear about it. So it's not hard for the audience to understand. Heinlein doesn't want to do that. He wants the Martians to be totally alien. In fact, we get a speech at the end where we're told by one of the characters that the Martians are, it took, it took white man, quote unquote white man, 500 years to understand the native people and they're related, they're, they're other humans. Uh, so that, that it, it's going to take us centuries, millennium, if ever, to fully understand the Martians because they are so radically different. Um, I, I mean, I'm more on that side of it. I, I'm kind of like, if you've read Martian Odyssey, that short story, I think that's the first to really emphasize that aliens are going to be super, super different. They're not just going to be like humans on Earth, like in an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, or humans on another planet. That's what you get in Edgar Rice Burroughs. Maybe they'll have some kind of feature. Um, no, there's something really odd and different about them, biologically, culturally, socially, or whatever, things that you really can't understand. Now, it's kind of clunky in that story, although it's a very good story, and, uh, and a bit weird and, and cartoonish at times. But here, I think it's really well done where we have, we have like the tea ceremony, but what it actually means is not fully clear. Their language is not clear. The bouncers and their relationship to the Martians aren't clear. Their gender roles are hypothesized to be totally different than ours. They seem to have a, this more collective communal communication. They seem to have psychic abilities. In almost every way, they're not understandable to humans. And so Heinlein doesn't like force us to try to understand them. He's just like, there's these really weird Martians observe them like our characters are and understand that it's going to take a lifetime to understand. The only way you could maybe is if you were, you know, spoiler alert for a future book, you know, like abandoned there as a baby and raised by the Martians. I mean, that's what happens in Stranger in a Strange Land, right? I think these are similar Martians to those, although I'll, I'll have to keep that in mind. Um, that's what Wikipedia says about this that these are essentially the same Martians as in that book. But it's been so long since I read Stranger in a Strange Land. But we will in, you know, half a year or so get there. Okay, um, so what do we know about the Martians? Well, uh, one hypothesis is that they start out as female and develop into males. Um, and it's not clear how the reproduction works that way, but that's one hypothesis, that bouncers are young, 
So Willis is actually a female and a young Martian, and that's why they're taken care of by the Martians so carefully is because they are just their young, younger versions of themselves. It's also told that there are older versions, like more advanced, that are more like ghosts and perhaps eternal and have very different conceptions of time and property and ownership and and everything. I have a different view of everything because they are essentially immortal or non-corporeal. Uh, we know they, they have these uh, psychic abilities. We know they're very, very communal, uh, cooperative. We know they have these tea ceremonies, not the tea ceremonies, the water ceremony, which is something that's supposed to bind people to that community and be part of it. They talk in collective language. We sort of saw this before in Methuselah's Children, so this is not totally original at this point for Heinlein. He is doing a little bit of material, but it's, you know, what's cool about this is he doesn't take the time to, like, fully lay it out and explain it. Like, uh, you know, it's not like a chapter where, where Jim reports in his diary the full accounting, of, full understanding of Martian culture. You know, other writers may have done that kind of thing. No, it's just like, these guys are really weird. Maybe in a thousand years we can start scratch the surface of their minds. Uh, we know that. So, what else do we know about them? Oh, we know they're they're an ancient civilization uh, that that had high tech. That evidence of the subway. Uh, they may have been spacefaring, but they turned their back on that. Um, so we saw that in uh, Space Cadet a little bit too, with the the people on Venus who were once spacefaring and now turn their back on that and no longer did it anymore, but still had the technology and, not, and the ability, the technical know-how to do that. Um, Martians are that way, but even more, it's even more clear here that they just don't, didn't see the worth in space exploration, which makes them very, very different from humans who obviously are investing a lot in Mars. We also know that the Martians are a little bit annoyed at the humans, but instead of just rebel, resisting them immediately, they kind of wanted to feel them out let them live there for a while, see what's up with them, and we're about to decide to basically kill off, drive out the humans, but they choose not to because of Jim and his relationship with Gecko and his relationship with Willis change their mind on that. So the power relationship shifts. They were originally, in the, in the when we first meet these Martians in the book, they're kind of presented as just like the indigenous people that are there to sort of be colonized eventually. You think of, the, they're actually compared at one point to Native Americans. Uh, at, so that's how you, know, you probably aren't gonna think about them, but that's because you're an American uh, and you're a settler from a settler colonial society. Presumably if you're reading this at the time, you, that's who you are. Uh, just conquered the West, just won World War II. So you think of these people as those that will be run over but Heinlein's not going to allow us to leave with that impression. Instead, it's the other way around. The humans are, are, are visitors on a planet that's fully owned by others. How terraforming is going to work in that sense, now that we understand the Martians more, is an open question. That's not going to be explored in this book, but again, it's something that's laid out there. So anyways, that's kind of what we got from the Martians. It's really, really fascinating stuff. It's not a huge part of the text of the book, but I think it's thematically very, very important. And I think it's building off of a lot of what Heinlein has been doing in his career. And it's, it's also a kind of a step forward and points to future books, obviously. Okay, so now we have the rebellion. So the main plot of the story in the last third of the book is Jim and Frank make it to uh, their hometown, warn the people, 
And what do they do? They have a town meeting. So like I said, it's an individualist culture where people are f totally free. There's a woman who like doesn't want to go along with the town meeting, and but they, they want to keep their secrecy. So they're like, you're free to leave, but we're going to have to keep an eye on you. You can't like fly away to warn the, the company. But she's free to leave, and she's not coerced into changing her point of view. People uh, have a variety of perspectives, and they're all like respected uh, in this town meeting and in the events that follow. No one is coerced into doing anything. Uh, everyone, of course, is armed. We've already established that this is a gun culture. So it's, a, it's really like the New England town hall meeting kind of society we have. And they meet, and it's a really wonderful uh, conversation and they actually talk about a question I, I offered up before which I still you know I think it's not a fully answered question here what is the motive of these villains in not letting the migration presumably in any colony and this may be a criticism of my only real criticism of this book is here in a colony your the value of a colony is in, in its people you know, that's the American story. That's ultimately why the, the, the Americas embraced slavery is because they tried to enslave the indigenous people. I mean, Columbus, when he first landed, if you read his early letters, he's interested in people and what they can do for, for, for Spain. They're not, he's not primarily interested in conversion. He's not primarily interested in land, right? Land is going to become a, an issue with Spanish and European colonialism, obviously. But the primary interest is what can these people provide for us in terms of trade or what can we extract from them? So that's your value is in people. So when you don't, when disease wipes out the native people, you have to either bring in indentured servants and when that's not enough or, or you can't convince people from your country to do like shitty work on a sugar plantation, you have to bring in slaves, right? And you have to, you know, if you were to pay someone market rate for that work, when there's free land everywhere, relatively easy to get, you'd have to pay them a lot of money, and you're not going to want to do that. So slavery becomes the solution to this economic problem. Obviously not a moral or ethical one, but, but it, it comes out of the economic logic, right? It's, it's a very capitalist decision to make, right? The cheapest possible labor that we can force to do this type of work is going to have to be coerced. It's going to have to be violently coerced. My point being is on, a, on Mars, your whole value of that colony would be in the people. Like nothing else would really ma match, right? And actually you see this in Farmer in the Sky where there's a lot of, to, to kind of jump ahead, there's a lot of thought put into like who's going to be the colonists. You have to apply. They want married couples. They want professionals, people with degrees. It's the same thing in, in Red, um, Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson where like the, the original set of colonists are really carefully chosen because of their, you know, the, for their brilliance. Multiple degrees, fertile couples, are, this, this is the kind of thing you want. Well, why then would you not allow the migration if that's where your value is, where people would die or not be productive? Um, it's 100 below. That's what we're told. The, the Martian winter in this part of the planet would be 100 below. Now, in the town hall meeting, one guy says, well, yeah, 
people can survive, like Eskimos can survive at 100 below winters, right? It is done. People live in Antarctic research bases and things. People, of course, have been in space, so this is not an impossibility, we're told, that they'll survive. But we don't want to, like, that's not what we signed up for. That's not the deal. Like, we had a contract, and that contract allowed for migration, and we're going to defend the rights. Later on, we're told that they probably would have died in the, in the winter. So I don't know what the, probably some would die, right? Or at least you wouldn't get much work out of them. That's, that's what I keep thinking. Like, okay, they would hunker down inside with the heater turned up, but it's not like you're going to get much productivity out of them. That way, agriculture, it would be, the cost-effective thing to do would be to allow the migration and have them continue doing their productive work for the company. That, that's what I don't understand about this. If it's explained, I must have missed it because I, I think this is the most bizarre uh, villain's plan I've ever seen. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But anyways, this is all just to set up the rebellion. So the plan is to just do the migration. That's ultimately what the town hall meeting agrees on. Uh, I think it's Jim's father, right, who kind of takes leadership here. So the plan is just do the migration and see what happens. Uh, fight if they stop us. So they go which is basically they go to the place where Jim was at school, and they, they're blocked. The governor's like, well, you can just freeze. We're not going to let you in. And then they decide to take over the school, and there's fighting, and the Martians help, and they finally kind of win their independence. Uh, so there's a few scenes of fighting, and there's some drama and tension about that, and, and Jim has this heroic moment. Jim's father does his things. There's... Uh, Dissension in the ranks a little bit between among the rebe rebellions, there's the, among the rebels. There's some interesting stuff in all that, but basically it's it's a very very condensed story of a war of independence against this corporation. And what do they win out of that? Well, they win an alliance with the Martians. That's the most, and that's Jim's contribution to the story. He wins an alliance with the Martians, but they also win their kind of political independence from the company. They get their autonomy. So they're a self-governing colony at this point. Um, and that's really the important arc. So we have Jim's arc, which is him becoming Martian in a way through his relationship with Willis and, and, and Gecko, but not completely. He's never going to be able to be completely Martian, but he's the bridge. He's the reverse Pocahontas in a way, right? And in fact, we do sort of have a... Willis might be the Pocahontas. I don't know. We have a Pocahontas here somewhere. <laughs> Um, although we're, we're warned not to compare these entirely to Native Americans, we, it's hard not to at times. So that's that arc. But then we have the arc for the colony itself, which is nice, because the arc starts out as subservient to the corporation and then is liberated at the end. And that's the res resolution. So that's Red Planet. I think, I think that sums up the important things here thematically. Um, the play-by-play, -play, the... the the chapter-by-chapter -chapter analysis here is good, but I'm not going to do it for you. It's a lot of wonderful stuff here in the, especially in the rebellion things. The Martian stuff's great. The conversation at the end, the chap last final chapter is just called Willis, and it's about like who are the Mar who are these Martians, and that's just I think a wonderfully daring thing to do is to set up the mystery of the Martians early on in the story. Uh, pretty much from chapter one, we're introduced to Willis. And then to leave the final chapter being like, we know almost nothing about these people, but here's a few things that maybe are clues. But 
and it's not dot 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 to be continued. It's just the book ends, and there's not really a sequel. It's just yeah, you, you we, these are unknowable creatures for us. Maybe some future generation can figure out. So great science fiction there, I think. A great way of handling the, the aliens. So um, yeah, that's it for now. So that's uh, that's Red Planet. Um, I'm not going to say too much more about it. I think it's a wonderful book. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think the juveniles really start to take off. So we're going to read another one that I've read before, Farmer in the Sky. And then pretty quickly we're going to get to ones that I haven't read, like Star Beast. Um, uh, um, Rolling Stones, I read, I think. So I think it's Rolling Stones and Farmer in the Sky, the two other juveniles that I've already looked at. The rest I haven't. So, uh, but before we get to tunnel, or far, sorry, not tunnel, farmer in the sky, we got to talk about a few more short stories. We'll start with Delilah, the space rigger, I think, uh, which is also another Green Hills of Earth. I think it's the last of the Green Hills of Earth kind of um, cycle of stories. And so that'll be sad to put together, put that down. But but the juveniles are so fun. I, I'm like eager to get back to it. Now, like the short stories are. Once you get into these novels, the short stories become a little bit of a distraction and a burden. Um, but got to go through them, got to do it. So four, two weeks of short stories coming up before we get to Farmer in, in the Sky. Um, but should be all good stuff. I, I, I don't think there's going to be anything bad uh, before we get there. Poor Daddy, I don't know. That, that's a bit of a question mark, but we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.